You're listening to Listen to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Ray Ray Yu. And on this episode, we have another author interview. Um, we're chatting with Jenny Tinghui Zhang, uh, the author of Four Treasures of the Sky, which came out on April 5th, 2022. So uh, available now on bookstores everywhere. Um, the novel takes place during the late 1800s in America. So right up at the time when a little law called the Chinese Exclusion Act um, was enacted by the U.S. government, barring all Chinese people from entering the country, and um, follows the main character Dayu as she is smuggled into the country um, to work at a brothel, and then um, follows her journey from San Francisco to Idaho as she tries to find a way back home. Um, the story is based on the real-life story of a lynching of five Chinese uh, yeah, the hanging of five Chinese merchants in Pierce, Idaho. So as you can already tell, uh, this is a pretty heavy book and it has a lot of Chinese American history. Um, we had a lovely conversation with Jenny on her research process and uh, just her relationship to her own Asian American history. So yeah. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So yeah, here is our interview with Jenny Tingfei-Zong. We are here with Jenny Tinghui Zhang on Books and Boba, the author of Four Treasures of the Sky. Um, welcome to the show, Jenny. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, we're excited to be chatting with you. Um, I understand the listeners will be listening to this episode in April when your book comes out. But we are talking to you right now in the middle of March. And apparently there's a big party going on outside. So um, if we hear any South by Southwest sounds, um, we just have to deal with it. Yes. And there's also... I, I just realized landscapers outside from my apartment <laughs> complex. So I'm very sorry to the listeners. <laughs> uh, it's the struggles of remote recording. I yes. think everyone can understand because we're all in the middle of a pandemic. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I would like to start off with a question that uh, we get asked very often as Asian Americans. Uh, where are you from? Oh, I mean... Am I answering the where are you from from or where am I from? I guess both. All. <laughs> well, I guess I, I did actually just dox you by saying South by Southwest. Oh, yes, so we know yes, that yes. you're in Austin, Texas. <laughs> yes, Austin, Texas. Lived here for 20 years. Um, and then before that, I spent like five years of my life in Oxford, Mississippi. And before that, I was born in Changchun, China. So you're true... Southern Asian. <laughs> I guess at this point, you know, I I never describe myself as a Southerner or a Texan, um, but I guess geographically that is what I am. <laughs> um, we also love to ask our, our authors, tell us about your journey to becoming a novelist. Yeah, so <laughs> I am going to use the cliche, but it's absolutely true. I've kind of always told stories since I was a kid, um, even back in, I think, preschool, 
in China, I would kind of just take the front of the class and tell these stories about this wolf that lived in the woods. And I would always prolong the story by saying, Ran Ho, blah, 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 Ran Ho, blah, blah, blah. Just, and my teacher, uh, I remember my mom told me my teacher would praise me because it meant she didn't have to teach as much and I could kind of corral the class with my storytelling. <laughs> so um, that that's kind of always been my thing is I've just always written and loved to write and tell stories. And, you know, um, I majored in English in college. Um, and then out of college, I realized that <laughs> you can't make a lot of money with an English degree is what everyone tells you. So I took a job. Um, I think it was called an editorial intern at the time with a startup in Austin because it just sounded writing adjacent and did the whole, you know, tech startup nine to five life um, for about four to five years where I was still kind of writing, but it wasn't the writing that I wanted to be doing. And it was writing for other people for things that I didn't necessarily believe in. Um, and I could kind of feel my soul just dying <laughs> every day. So I decided to apply to MFA programs um, and really give this thing that I love to do kind of all of me. Um, and I was happy to say that I was accepted into the um, University of Wyoming MFA program. So I went there for two years and that was kind of the start, I think, of me feeling comfortable um, devoting my life to writing and calling myself a writer and really pursuing it in a way that I felt um, was, I don't want to use the word productive because it's such a loaded word these days, but it just felt very fruitful to me and and kind of like this is what I'm meant to be doing. I know that you uh, worked in a lot of like nonfiction publications, like you wrote for The Rumpus, Huffington Post, The Cut. Uh, so I'm curious as to like how that transition was writing articles and personal essays to writing a full length fictional work. Yeah. So weirdly, I did go into my MFA program with a concentration in nonfiction. Um, but my nonfiction, um, primarily what I've published has been personal essays. But a lot of the nonfiction I was writing, I think some people could turn it around and call it autofiction, like autobiographical fiction. Um, and in my MFA program, in, in most MFA programs um, with workshops, you're often writing and workshopping short stories or maybe um, nonfiction pieces that are around 20 pages or less. And I remember the critique I would often, well, maybe it was feedback, less so critique. I'll, I'll say it was critique. Um, what I would often hear from my professors and my peers is the story is just, it's it's sprawling. It sprawls too much. Um, like I needed to kind of rein it in and, and, and um, just cut it down in scope and length probably. So uh, honestly, the transition for me from writing these shorter pieces um, and, and some, some of which were, I would say, autofiction, um, going to a novel was 
really easy and honestly very freeing. And one key difference, I think, is that when you're writing nonfiction and especially personal essays, you're always thinking, okay, am I staying true to what happened? Am I presenting it in the right way? If this didn't really happen, then I can't move forward in this avenue with the essay. Um, And then when I got to writing this novel, I realized if something's not working, I can just change it. I can just take it out. Like I'm in control here. I'm not at the mercy of the reality of um, what happened. So that was another very freeing and happy discovery for me. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, on that note, let's talk about your novel, Four Treasures of the Sky. Um, Can you give us a brief description of what it's about? Yes. So Four Treasures of the Sky is about a young 13-year-old girl named Dai who is kidnapped from her home in China and shipped across the ocean, ends up in a brothel in San Francisco and, uh, you know, escapes and makes her way over to Idaho and is trying to get back to her home in China. And all of this is happening in 1882, um, which is right around the time of the Chinese Exclusion Act. So not only is she faced with just pure environmental threats, um, the fact that she's in the West during the winter, for example. Um, But she's also dealing with these very real threats from the country at large and the kind of anti-Chinese hatred that's um, been bubbling under the surface for quite some while, quite some time. (laughs) Yeah. Reading this book reminded me of, I, I think it was a meme or a joke or something, I read recently where it's like time travel would be awesome, but only if like white people, right? Yes. <laughs> like white totally. dudes. Totally. Yes. <laughs> Agree a hundred percent. Cause like, yeah, the situation back then, I mean, you can feel it in this book. There's just just a constant danger of just existing in America at this time when like everyone around you can literally hurt you with no consequences, right? Yes. And you know, that's something that I kind of wondered of myself, and I think in in the past two years, I've been feeling it more, is I, I personally do feel like I'm more alert when I go out these days. And I to imagine being in the, the Wild West during a time when you absolutely are not welcome, I, I, I feel like I'm only experiencing a modicum of what that would be like. Yeah. I mean, what inspired you to write? A story about this time period? Yeah, um, I'll preface this by saying I never imagined I would write historical fiction ever. All of all of the things I write are very based in the current time period. Um, but it was actually, um, and those of you who read the book and read the, the author's note at the end will know this, but um, it was something that my dad brought to my attention. Um, he was driving through Idaho for work And one night he was going through this town called Pierce, Idaho, and he saw this historical marker on the side of the road. He stopped because he saw the word Chinese on it. And the marker said Chinese hanging tree, I believe. Um, And it described an event in 1885 where five Chinese men were hanged by white vigilantes for the alleged murder of a local white store owner. And my dad was thinking, what were Chinese people doing in Idaho 
1885. What were they doing here? Um, so he brought that story back to me. This was 2014. And he told me about it. And he was like, hey, you're a writer. You Can you, can you write what happened for me? Like, I've looked online. I can't figure it out. Tell me what happened. I didn't think anything of it because it just sounded, I mean, my, my dad is full of so many ideas and curiosities. But um, later on in the last semester of my MFA program, I was taking a long form writing workshop and we were working on novels. And this story from my dad was kind of the only thing that felt worthy of pursuing. Um, and maybe it had been brewing in my mind all those years, but uh, it, it really came from him. I had no desire to return to 1885. Um, you know, historical fiction, in my opinion, is so difficult to write because when you're writing a story set in the present day, you can just say like, oh, he picked up the cup and he drank from the cup. Whereas with historical fiction, you have to think about wait, is it a cup? What what did they call the cup back then? What does the cup look like, you know? So yeah, that's that's how I got to his, historical fiction. I kind of love that your dad is the one pitching you stories for you to write. Uh, I mean, Marvin, if you're a writer, people are always pitching you stories. Like people just assume that you could just write anything that they pitch. That's just the life of a writer. But I'm glad that your dad pitched the story and um, you weaved so much Chinese-American history into your book. Um, a lot of the events that happened in, in the book actually happened in real life. So um, when did your interest in Asian-American history begin? Did you Were you always interested in that? Were you always knowledgeable in it? I definitely wasn't. I did not even know about the Chinese Exclusion Act until I took a intro to Asian American Studies course in, I think it was the last semester, last year <laughs> of, of my collegiate career, my undergrad. And so I was maybe 21, 22 at the time, um, which is a long time to not know about the history of your people in this country. But growing up in, as I mentioned, Oxford, Mississippi, and then Texas, you get Texas government, you get like Mississippi government and history, you get American history, but none of my textbooks mentioned, you know, aside from the Transcontinental Railroad, which was a very brief mention, they never talked about this history that Chinese Americans have here. Um, so it started for me as kind of a personal um, favor, I guess, to my dad to kind of look into this story. But the more I looked into it, the more I realized these weren't just, you know, one and done events. They were happening throughout the Pacific Northwest in California and the Southwest. And um, they were at danger of being forgotten because a lot of the much of the record of these events was through these kind of physical markers. And I had read that this marker that my dad saw had already been vandalized and stolen a, a few times. So for me, I was thinking, well, if these markers are kind of the only vestiges that we have and they are at danger of just being destroyed in some near future, then how do we remember Um how do you know what history you should know if you don't even know that there's a history to know? Um, so, yeah, and I think in writing this book, in many ways, I was teaching myself 
uh, Chinese American and Asian American history, the the laws, the court rulings, um, just just like the complicity of everyone involved. I had no idea about that before this. Yeah. It's always interesting because Asian American history, or I guess American history in general, is a series of like waves of immigration, right? Like um, my family's history is not the history of people like Dayu who came in the 1800s. Like my family came in the 80s, mm-hmm. right? Some families came in the 70s, 60s. But I do know some friends whose families descend from people who came in the 1800s as well. And it is important to understand that history because it is so relevant to the current situation today, right? Like we are recording this one day after the one year anniversary of the Atlanta, um, Atlanta spa shootings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and it's also like a couple days after, um, I I think the most recent story was an Asian woman was beaten 125 times in New York city. And this was literally like right after the anniversary. And, um, I, I just want to ask, like, what was your experience writing this novel in the middle of the pandemic and like the surge of anti-Asian attacks? I mean, was it emotionally difficult for you? Yeah, I, it, short answer. Yes, very much so. Um, <clears throat> I was kind of finishing up this. I was writing part four um, right around the time the pandemic really hit the United States. And this was also the time when Trump called it the Chinese virus and the Kung flu. And it was very uh, surreal to be writing about a time and a place when people um, very much treated Chinese people like they were diseases. Um, to, to be writing that and then to like actually see that still was really surreal and demoralizing. Um, And as I continued writing the book, you know, we mentioned historical fiction, right? I just, I no longer felt like I was writing historical fiction, neither historical nor fiction. It just, it was almost too close to home. Um, So yeah, it it was difficult. I have to say it was difficult for me to read your novel because I was like, uh, like the violence against Asian American women it existed, um, you know, in the 1800s and it's it exists now. And it, it just feels I know that a lot of non-Asian readers are probably going to say, oh, this is a timely subject, but it's it's not because it's. It's baked into our history, and much of that history has been glossed over. Um, I was actually not aware that uh, Chinese women were smuggled into the U.S. after the Page Act of 1875, uh, which barred Asian women from immigrating to America because they were afraid that uh, Asians would repopulate and uh, (laughs) spread the disease. It's utterly ridiculous and i i just feel like this piece of history is not really mentioned even in asian american studies so i i just want to ask like how did you stumble upon like this information yeah i was actually so the novel originally was conceived kind of similar to how the poison wood bible is uh told and structured where i wanted to focus on each of the five chinese uh men who are hanged 
and tell their stories chapter by chapter and they get their own uh, chapter. And so I started with Nelson, actually. He was he was my very first character. And I was wondering how were people getting to America around the time of these exclusion acts? And I found this, uh, I think it was research article or scholarly article um, describing how Chinese girls and women would be stuffed into buckets of coal or um, into crates of China and shipped across. And it, it was interesting to me because I had to really dig for that information. I had to go into JSTOR and know what keywords and search terms I was looking for. And again, this is the issue of, you know, we're not really in history. We're not really in the history of America. Like I had to know what I was looking for in order to find that. Um, and it, it kind of was that way with a lot of the research that I did. It had to be very specific and I had to sift through a lot of other things before I could find it. The The scholarship is definitely there, but it still feels to me very niche um, and relatively small compared to the other uh, pockets of history that that we have scholarship on in America. Yeah, I'm like really glad that there seems to be like this emergence of Asian Western stories in in literature. Um, there was C. Pam Zhang's uh, How Much of These Hills is Gold and Peter Ho Davies' uh, The Fortunes. Uh, so like, yes, they're, they're great books, uh, by the way, <laughs> listeners. Uh, what are your thoughts on like the expansion of like the old Western uh, canon, especially since Westerns are technically like a white fantasy for the lack of better terms. <laughs> like, why yes. do you think the subgenre is like finding a mainstream audience now? Perhaps it is because for so long, the Western has felt very exclusive um, and, and only something that's for the, you know, cis white male audience or only includes them. Um, I, I couldn't tell you why it feels like there is this kind of surge right now of, um, you know, reimaginings of the West, right? You're right. Like we have CPM Jong's book. We have Tom Lin's book, The Thousand Crimes of Ming Tzu. Um, and, and also Anna North's Outlawed, which kind of reimagines who was in the West at the time. I wonder if we are all just fed up of hearing the same stories over and over again. Um, but at the same time, you know, I keep saying it's not like we're reinventing the West. This was kind of always the West, right? Chinese immigrants were always a part of the West. It's just now that we are surfacing those stories more. We're not inventing anything new. It's always been there. Yeah, I mean, the story could have happened for it did happen for reals. And I, let me just tell you, this reading your book inflicted a lot of emotional damage for me. Um, it was, you know, it's definitely not a fun times book, but it is like just so well written. And I love that you spend time kind of breaking down. Here is the word for like black. And this these are the components of the word black and what they mean. And I haven't read that in a book before. And I thought that was just really, really cool to see. Thank you. I. You know, I, I immigrated when I was five, so I lost a lot of my Chinese 
<clears throat> trying to assimilate, which I know a lot of people have gone through that as well. Um, and so for me, it was really important because I knew Dayu does not start the book knowing English. She has to come to it and learn it. Um, and I wanted to capture what that might look like for someone who only thinks and feels and knows Chinese <clears throat> to step into this other language. Because at the same time as she's learning English, I feel like in writing this book, I was kind of relearning Chinese. This was the first time I felt like I could actually understand how these characters are formed and, and the significance of the radicals and why they are the way they are. So it it was almost a selfish move on my part to, to put that into the book because I, I wanted to come back to the language as well. Yeah, I, I love that I was able to see Chinese characters in like an English language book. It's not something that you really come across. And um, the meaning of names, too, I thought it was really creative how like you would get like an English name and you would break it down into like Chinese phonetics and figure and, and with Dayu like trying to figure out like what their identity is just based on their names. And uh, speaking of names, uh, Dayu is actually based on a character from a classic novel, uh, Dream of the Red Chamber. Um, and there are supernatural elements in your book. Uh, so what compelled you to add like Dayu's spirit into your book and give the protagonist the same name as her? Yeah, I think <laughs> for me, as I was writing the first, I think, 40 pages, a lot of, you know, bad stuff happens to Dayu in those first 40 to 60 pages. And I realized probably when she was in the, uh, the, the dark room and uh, Jasper is, uh, you know, somewhere out there and she's just all alone. I realized then that I needed to give her something to hold on to. I couldn't just have her go through this book without having some sort of companion, whether it's spiritual or actually physical. So I I landed on Lindayu for the same reasons as I landed on calligraphy. I just wanted her to have something um, that was hers and that she could carry with her through through the things that happened to her. Yeah. Also, you know, Chinese people love to give meaningful names to their children. <laughs> Yes, it is true. <laughs> I mean, for like you say that a lot of bad things happen to Dayu, and that is like an understatement, readers. Like a lot of bad things happen to Dayu, and I don't want to spoil anything. But uh, for the bulk of the novel, Dayu thinks that the plight of Chinese people in America is not her problem because one, she was kidnapped. She did not choose to come to this country and she did not choose to learn English. Those were choices that were robbed from her. And I feel like so many immigrants come to this country because they don't have a choice or uh, and they have an illusion of choice because the other option is just not an option. Uh, so my question is like, when do you think a place becomes home to immigrants? And like, do you think home is always the last place we left? Because Dayu is constantly thinking about going back to China and going back to uh, her home. And I just feel like that was kind of an, an illusion for her as a character. Mm, gosh, that's a really good question. And I don't know if I know the answer. I I could probably only answer it from my experience. Um 
Go for it. <laughs> okay. Um, I would say, I don't know. I, I guess it depends on what you associate home with, right? So for me, language is one of the things that I'm constantly struggling with. Um, and I think my definition of home changes based on the language I'm using. And I mean that in, in terms of Mandarin or English. Sometimes I feel very at home when my parents use my Chinese name, my Xiaoming, and that feels the most like home to me. And sometimes I feel at home when my friends call me Jenny um, or any other nicknames that they've given me. Um, and I look, I'm back to names again. I'm sorry. I didn't know I was going to go to names. Um, but I, I, it's going to be different for everyone. But I think if I were to step back, I would say, I don't know if as an immigrant, you really ever feel at home in quote unquote, the new country. Um, and again, this, this is speaking for myself, um, simply because I think, especially for Asian folks, we're constantly being reminded that our home is neither here nor there. You know, um, it, I think it almost varies every single day. <laughs> I don't know if that's that's a good answer to your question or if I even No, I think that's it. a fantastic answer. <laughs> yeah. and, it's complicated. And like, is the it's short com- it is yes. complicated. Yeah, it's, com- like, it's complicated. Like yeah. we we that's what being part of the diaspora is. We're no we're in between. And like I thought the scenes where Dayu goes into Chinatown, I was really surprised that there was a Chinatown mm. in Idaho. But of course there is, because that is how uh, you find jobs. That is how you find safety in your own bubble, in your own community. And I thought that was, you know, I was like, oh, OK, like home is where your people are, where you feel uh, like you don't have to mask yourself like you said with with the language and stuff that's why i was curious in in, in um about your own opinion on on your definition of home yeah i mean like you mentioned even if we do feel comfortable in our own skin like even here like you know weaver and i live in southern california we're mm-hmm. surrounded by asians all the time but even around us there are hate crimes going on like right right outside our door so it's like you know even if you feel comfortable you're still constantly reminded that there are people out there who think you don't belong mm-hmm. in the only place you've called home for like the last few decades, you know? Yeah. I, I think um, to your point, it, for me at least, there was always a question of like, how do I know that I belong? Or can I say that I belong, even though I've lived here for the majority of my life? And it was, you know, sad but true discovering that there were Chinese people here for a really long time and they contributed in so many ways that and 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 you know they they did fight back against the things that they that were happening to them being able to see that and discover that makes me feel even more like we have stake in this country and we do belong here um and I think that's a part of the history that's important for us as we go through these current times is just remembering that, you know, we aren't perpetual foreigners. Yeah. So as we um, approach 
the launch of your book, um, how do you feel that this book is coming out? And like at from th- at the time of recording in like two weeks, right? Or two, yes. three weeks? Yes. I am um, very excited, but also very terrified. <laughs> so I, I feel like I'm just taking it day by day, feeling very grateful, but also scared. <laughs> Well, it's a wonderful book. It is Four Treasures of the Sky. It's releasing April 5th, 2022. Congratulations, Jenny, on Thank your you. debut novel. And Thank and you. are you working on anything else right now? I am. I was working on a second novel that I had to put on hold to get right. book one out into the world. But I am slowly tinkering away at something that's set in the present day that does not deal with uh, all the heavy things that... <laughs> This first book dealt with. I love my first book, but I think historical fiction it puts a lot of pressure on you, and i I just want to I just want to call a cup a cup, you know. <laughs> well, Jenny, thank you so much for joining us on Book Symbol Book. Congrats once again on the launch of your book, and yeah, we hope to see you again soon. Thank you for having me, y'all. It was it was really lovely getting to chat. And that was our interview with Jenny King Song, the author of Four Treasures of the Sky, available now at bookstores everywhere. I will say that this is probably one of my favorite books of 2022 so far. I mean, we are not really far into 2022, but um, I thought it was a very, very quote-unquote timely book. And I think, like, I really hope that a lot of non-Asian readers will pick it up because I feel like it introduces history in such an accessible and uh, entertaining way. Yeah, there's going to be a link to this book in our bookshop.org store. So if you want to pick up a copy and also support the bookstores, as well as our podcast, you can check it out there. As always, we appreciate we appreciate all of your support um, and we appreciate everyone who's bought a book through our bookstore. Um, uh, so I guess before we wrap up, Rira, can you remind us what we're reading for the month of March? Uh, are we I, like? Are we releasing this episode Shit, in that's the beginning true. of April? Yeah, yeah, I have not decided oh. on April book um, because I was like, "What do we read?" I'll, I don't want to read anything long, so I'm trying to find a shorter book. I'll just insert this in there. Right. Okay, yeah, yeah, thanks. And don't forget our April 2022 Books and Boba Book Club pick is "A Taste for Love," a rom-com about a baking competition that turns out to be a elaborate bachelorette-style setup. Uh, we'll be discussing all the rom-com shenanigans at the end of the month. So if you've already finished the book, uh, please let us know on our Goodreads forums. Um, we'd love to incorporate your feedback. And yeah, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thanks again to Jenny Tinoizan for joining us. And yeah, we'll see you all next time on Books and Boba. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American-hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening.
Hey, I'm Phil Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.